If the energy transition proceeds, as most people think it will, what's going to happen to Canada's oil and gas sectors in a decade? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, Aaron Cosby, a senior associate and economist at the International Institute for Sustainable Development, who's based in British Columbia, lays out what he sees happening to demand for fossil fuels in the next decade. Cosby discusses carbon capture, hydrogen as a transition fuel, and trends in the U.S., the main customer for Canada's oil. He recently helped author the report, Setting the Pace, the Economic Case for Managing the Decline of Canada's Oil and Gas Production. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Aaron, welcome to Down to Business. It's great to talk with you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Great. Well, you recently helped author a report called Setting the Pace, the Economic Case for Managing the Decline of Canada's Oil and Gas Production. And in a nutshell, I guess what it says is that oil and gas may not be an economic engine for the country much longer. So we need to start planning what to do about this. When does the report assume oil demand peaks and why? We assume, and and these kinds of assumptions are always a bit of a guessing game, but we assume, along with many other credible analysts, that we're going to hit a peak in global demand for oil around 2030, if not sooner, for gas, maybe a few years after that. But both of them will then go into terminal decline. Really, the only question for credible analysts is how steep that rate of decline will be post-peak. Everyone agrees that we are hitting a peak in the next decade. Okay, so that's oil, but you also say the outlook for gas is more uncertain, you know, natural gas as opposed to oil. Can you explain why that is? Sure. For both of those commodities, we looked at the end uses and tried to figure out what those end uses and trends in technology meant in terms of global demand. For oil, it's a simpler picture. There's clearly a destruction of demand in many of the major end uses, and we'll get into some of that. For gas, some of the assumptions we have to make are less straightforward. It depends on behavior, for example, of large Asian clients and whether they are going to continue their use of gas and expand their use of gas as an electricity generation fuel or whether they will move into renewables like wind, solar to do that generation for them. At this point, that's an unknown. Our prediction is that given the cost differentials just on straight cost and the transient cost, the move will be toward renewables, but not all analysts agree on that. Right. And so let's get into the nitty gritty, maybe. You basically split oil and gas into three buckets, transportation, plastics, and heating for buildings. Can you talk to me about what you see happening to each of these demands over the next decade or so? Sure. So let's talk about oil for a starter. The most clear-cut trend, and we're already seeing it, is in road transport, where we have 44% of global oil tied up as an end use. There, take we're on the cusp of an S-curve of adoption of electric vehicles and personal transport. That's fairly clear-cut. The uncertainties in road transport are mostly in how fast we'll see an uptake in commercial vehicles, heavy heavy-duty transport, large trucks. Commercial trucks, delivery trucks, the kinds of things you see running around cities, less uncertain. For those, there's a clear-cut case, especially if you're a fleet owner. Because of the overall lifetime cost, there's so much lower for transferring over to an electric vehicle. In that end use, it's clear-cut demand destruction. 
For plastics, not so clear cut. Well, many, many uh, analysts predict an increase in the use of plastics in the developing world, given projected increases in population, projected increases in GDP, and you know, building off the relationship between GDP and population in developed countries now, projecting that forward in developing countries, you do get a, a huge increase in plastics. The question is whether those are valid projections. We see a rising tide of concern about the use of plastics and plastic pollution, not only as a developed country problem, but also as a developing country problem, reflected in a number of, of settings that lead us to believe that's not going to be a consistent pattern. It's not going to be the same rate of uptake um, in developing countries as in, as in developed. In heating, home heating and power generation, oil there, we've got about 12% use. Already, that's a, that's a zombie. That's walking dead end use. There's clear-cut economic advantages to the alternatives for home heating, whether you use gas or whether you use heat pumps. And for power generation, uh, similarly, those end uses, even in the most conservative scenarios, the International Energy Agency sees those dropping by uh, 2030 quite precipitously. And there is a final category, shipping and transport, uh, in, in air transport and maritime shipping. In both of those, again, we see the beginnings of demand destruction because of global climate policies, agreement to end those uses. We're seeing technology advances almost too fast to keep up with in terms of the kinds of batteries you could apply to aviation. In those end uses also, we see not near term, not by 2030, but post-2030, vastly declining demand. That's going to mean much less global oil consumed. That was a great summary of what's happening at a global level. Let's talk about Canadian oil specifically. It goes to the U.S., more than 80% of it. What's happening there? What's going to happen there? Canada exports to a bunch of captive refiners in the Midwest that are geared up to take our particular type of oil. It's a heavy, sour, crude, uh, and they've invested billions in the capacity to do so. They need Canadian oil, and their alternatives for getting that kind of oil are very limited because previously that came from Venezuela, from Mexico. Those sources of supply have basically dried up. Similarly, Gulf Coast refiners, they have a few more options for getting that type of oil, but even they are highly dependent on Canadian supplies of that oil. Moreover, there will be continued demand for gasoline and the other products of oil, even post-2030. It's just going to be smaller. The question is, where will those supplies in the U.S. come from? We know that U.S. demand is going to fall. I mean, the predictions of the demand destruction of gas just from the Inflation Reduction Act, the most recent sort of climate regulations passed in the States, are for uh, 2.1 million barrels a day off U.S. demand by 2030 and 4.1 million barrels a day by 2035. Given that we export to the U.S. less than 4 million barrels a day, that's a significant drop. But the question is, will that translate directly into a drop for Canada? And the likelihood is not. We're sheltered to some degree by the fact that we have those captive clients. We are not sheltered, though, from the global impacts of lower oil prices. We're price takers. So the fact that we have those nice captive customers in the U.S. is good in terms of volume sold, probably. But we are still subject to low global prices that will come about because of low global demand. I see. So it's not that Canada will lose its market. This will just be increasingly less profitable, is your prediction. Both will happen. We will lose some market share eventually. Even those complex refineries will feel the pinch as U.S. consumption of oil dries up. 
they will probably be the last ones to do so because they're modern, they're, they're efficient. But eventually we'll feel that. But no, the most immediate impacts will come in terms of price. And so how does that shake out then, like for Canadian oil from the U.S. peak? Uh, that's probably slightly after 2030. We haven't gone into that level of detail in terms of demand projections, but that's likely shortly after 2030. We, we're starting to see already the seeds of demand destruction in the U.S. Even though there's no carbon price, industrial policy moves by the U.S. government in uh, trying to create an EV sector, weaning themselves off of gas as a feedstock for some of the industrial processes, mean that we are going to see demand destruction in the States as well. That's probably 2030 or shortly thereafter, if you go by most of the credible predictions. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So the the Canadian oil market and oil and gas producers have been pretty resilient over the years. <laughs> Their death notice has been written many times. During the beginning of the pandemic, prices were briefly negative, and it was followed by a huge surge because it's very difficult to match supply and demand. There's sort of a lot. Everyone predicts it's going to be bumpy, that there will be you know, jolts where sources will suddenly get taken off the market and there won't be an immediate replacement energy source, but there will still be demand for energy and that'll cause the price of oil to suddenly shoot up. And so how does this happen though? Is this very bumpy? Are there going to be a lot of peaks along the way that cause investors to pour into oil? We see a lot of volatility in the price going forward for commodities like oil. It's a factor of all the things you've talked about it's going to be a bumpy transition uh, as we transition away from oil as a as an engine of our industry and transport and toward other sources, which some of which are not yet mature. But also because we will see, uh, and this is important, it's an important part of our analysis and assumptions, we will see uh, a response from other producers internationally that probably doesn't look like a constrained and disciplined OPEC market control response. You will probably see producers within OPEC as demand declines without the prospect of a big bounce back or bounce back along a declining trend line who decide they want to liquidate their assets more quickly because they will be worth less in future. Anyway, we, we predict a breakdown in OPEC discipline, which is also going to contribute to that volatility in, in prices. And this is important. That volatility, those upward spikes, those downward spikes, when it's up, sure, you make more money. But overall, that scares off investment and it kills jobs. That's, the volatility in itself is a huge force for demand destruction. The, the volatility in the EU to, by the cutoff of Russian gas has been one of the greatest forces for energy transition that we've seen historically. You've seen a doubling, doubling in the pace of deployment of renewables on the continent since that happened. And, and you know, over the last year, gas consumption has dropped by about 15%. I mean, that's significant. Yeah, that's double digits. Let's talk about hydrogen. It's been described as a transition fuel. We can use natural gas, which is abundant and cheap out west, and you could add carbon capture, use it for industrial purposes. Maybe it could work on heavy trucks, which aren't as easy to electrify yet. What happened when you looked at that scenario? The two things I want to talk about there. One is the idea that we've settled this question. Heavy transport is probably going to go hydrogen. It's not settled. This is one of the great uncertainties in, in future modeling. There, there are currently solutions that I've seen in place in Australia that have swap out batteries in heavy transport that work great in all conditions and under all loads. 
and actually makes sense from a lifetime operating cost perspective. But we do have the beginnings of a hydrogen hub in Alberta that could be the basis for that kind of long-range transport as well. Hydrogen has very specific applications, though. This is the second thing. It only makes sense if you've got an infrastructure that can support the refueling uh, along the transport route. That's kind of a, a problem. And it is difficult to store and transport. It makes sense if you're using hydrogen, for example, as a replacement feedstock in petrochemicals or fertilizers. You can produce it on site, use it on site. The transport of hydrogen as hydrogen is not an easy thing. And storage of hydrogen as hydrogen is not as easy thing. It's, it's expensive. The stuff's too light. It leaks. It's corrosive. So this is a big uncertainty. We just don't know. There is very exciting potential in Alberta to produce low carbon hydrogen, you know, whether by electrolysis or by, you know, pyrolysis of methane in the ground, both of which are emissions free. Some exciting potential in that respect. But I don't personally see it being playing a big part in the transport sector going forward. The major oil sands producers have said they wanted to build carbon capture plants to help them navigate this transition. And they've asked the government for assistance meaning tens of billions of dollars to help pay for this. You said you don't see this as part of the solution, that gasoline is not like coffee. You won't see an eco-label on the gas at you know the pump. Customers just don't care. Can you talk about what your view is on this? If those producers want to put their own money into carbon capture and storage, that's a wonderful thing. I'm fully supportive. If they want public money, then, okay, I need to ask, what's the purpose? If the purpose is to protect the jobs, the investment, the government revenues that go along with the oil and gas sector in the future in Canada, by preserving our market share, I don't accept that premise. Look at the people who are buying our oil don't care. They want a reliable supply. They want the right quantity. But U.S. refiners are not asking us to give them low-carbon oil. It's just not part of their market calculation. Neither are the Chinese or Indian or other Asian refiners to whom we are increasingly exporting through the Gulf Coast. They just don't care. So if arguing for CCS as a way to reduce our emissions and preserve market share, I don't accept the premise that it does that. If, on the other hand, you're arguing that CCS is a way to reduce the carbon emissions in that sector as part of our national effort to reduce carbon emissions, fine. Then you, But then it has to compete against all our other available opportunities for carbon reduction, for mitigation. And given the high costs of CCS and the technical uncertainty, I think it's going to have a hard time in that competition. Okay, that's a thought-out answer. I think it's important just to stop and point out, too, that even under the assumption that oil demand peaks in 2030, that that still assumes that oil demand continues to grow for another eight years. There's a lot that needs to happen, however, for us to move off of oil, right? A lot of supply chains are in the process of being built. There are a lot of kinks that people have identified in terms of getting the raw materials needed to have enough solar panels, enough wind turbines. So I wanted to ask you, what do you see going wrong that maybe changes the economic case for oil and gas in Canada? Well, the, the big question is, is gas, because as you uh, gas is the feedstock for electricity generation uh, and gas as a, a, a fuel for home heating. 
both the conversion to electricity generation through renewables and the conversion to home heating through technologies like heat pumps are insanely complex propositions. And they they depend on the infrastructure, they depend on consumer behavior, they depend on the government incentives and regulatory changes that we just don't know are going to happen. They depend on a, a, a near doubling of the electricity supply in Canada to underlie this entire electrify everything push, all of which I really hope will happen, but all of which is very uncertain. So that's that's a whole level of uncertainty with respect to gas. Oil, uh, not so much so. We have a pretty clear path forward for the conversion of our transport fleet into electric vehicles. And I think, as I say, I, I see it on the beginning of an S-curve that is going to defy all the predictions, as it regularly has year on year on year, defied the predictions of, for consumer uptake. I think that there's a, a lot less uncertainty within Canada in terms of the, the electrification of the fleet and what that does to oil demand. There is one other element of uncertainty in all of our predictions, uh, a wild card, and that is the behavior of other producers globally. If OPEC can maintain some sort of discipline in the face of terminally declining demand and keep prices up, then it's entirely possible that Canadian producers will do well in a, in a declining global market. That's possible. If OPEC can maintain control, uh, discipline among its members and do what Saudi is doing right now in terms of maintaining high prices for oil, that means that Canadian producers may be able to do very well, even in a market where you see declining global demand. Our prices will be high and we will be selling good quantities of oil to the U.S. for you know at least 10 years. If we take your calculations at face value, what is the best way to manage this decline? What can our government do, our industry do to prepare for a world in which oil is less just to, so that we don't lose an economic engine? Right. I mean, fortunately, we have some precedents on which to draw. There are a lot of negative examples of unplanned transition and they're, they're terrible, but there are also positive lessons. I mean, you look at what Germany did when it decided in the 70s that coal was not the future for economic driver of, of Germany and its prosperity and got social, basically developed a social compact with workers, firms, government, civil society, who all came together to agree that on, on their vision for the future and started a tense process of economic diversification, of retraining, reskilling, upskilling, of government support for new sectors and innovation that lasted two decades, but delivered a Germany that is the economic and industrial powerhouse of the modern world. That's the kind of approach you need. And just, you know, as an aside, if I look at the recent Sustainable Jobs Act and, and what it has set up and what it intends to do, it's a really pale, pale version of that. And it's, it's entirely not up to the task. First, you need to admit what the problem is, and it doesn't even talk about that. Then you need to sink serious money into diversification. And in Alberta, in my view, that builds off the existing strengths, the project management, the financial, the resources, the engineers, the human capacity, and does stuff like sinking money into bitumen beyond combustion to pull out carbon fiber or lithium production to, you know, or, or geothermal using uh, horizontal drilling techniques. There is a lot of potential there, but we're not exploiting it. So are any of those enough, though, to fully offset the massive pull that the oil and natural gas sector has played in our economy for the past, you know, 15 years? 
it's an open question. But if you could get carbon fiber costs, production costs down to the point where it's competitive with structural steel, the market is much greater than the current export market we enjoy for oil. Much greater. The question is, can you? Alberta Innovates, that's been working on this stuff for years, thinks they can. I think I'm optimistic enough to think we should throw more money at it to find out. But yeah, sure, the, the market there is huge. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm glad we could end on a positive note in terms of ideas and things we could do, but I, I do really appreciate you coming on the show. Well, I appreciate your interest. It's been a great conversation. That was Aaron Cosby, a senior associate and economist at the International Institute for Sustainable Development based in British Columbia. Thanks for listening to Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on this show, designed the logo, and executive produced this episode. Victoria Wells, Pamela Heaven, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and Down to Business will return with more episodes. We're experimenting with different formats, different release schedules, so in between new episodes, you can find business news at financialpost.com. And stay tuned for more Down to Business.